It all started with a small-time dream. Hold a conference in a church. With a small budget, could we afford to bring in a Christian celebrity speaker? And with an ear to hear more than just the same canned messages, do we want to? With these two questions, The Mentionables were born. We found the best under-the-radar Christian apologists that we could find. Writers, podcasters, and bloggers. Their voice was small, but their message was huge. On May 18th and 19th, The Mentionables will be appearing in Greensboro. Head out to Greensboro Christian Church and hear this grassroots phenomena in action, featuring talks and a great debate. Head over to thementionables.org to get your tickets, or call Greensboro Christian Church at 336-621-5226. The Mentionables. Small-time voices, big-time noise. on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. And welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today, like every other day, is no exception. I'll be very concerned if it ever is. Today, we're talking about the Gospels. We pick up our Bibles and we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We don't really take much time to think about what are these books? Well, the Gospels. Okay. What does that mean exactly? What is a gospel? And can we really trust these sources to be reliable about the historical Jesus? I mean, we have so many comments we see from people on the great big world of the internet. The gospels don't give their their sources. They're not by eyewitnesses. They're too late. Everything else out there. Well, in order to discuss this, I decided to bring on one of the co-writers of a book, the book is Biographies in Jesus. What does it mean for the Gospels to be biographies? It's written by Craig Keener, who has been on here before, and Edward T. Wright, who is my guest today, and he prefers to go by T. I'm going to try and stick to that, but I might say Ed, Edward, anything like that. But I'm going to try and stick with T. So who is he? He grew up in Austin, Texas, and attended Baylor University for his undergraduate work. He majored in business administration with a specialization in management. He worked in a private sector for a few years in the steel industry before deciding to attend seminary. He did his MDiv at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. Upon completion of that, he was accepted into Asbury, where he is currently a candidate in the dissertation phase of a PhD in Biblical Studies with a specialization in New Testament. He is studying working under Dr. Craig Keener as his TA mentor. His dissertation is on the historical reliability of ancient biographies, and he hopes to complete this work by the fall of this year. So, uh, T, welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. Thank you so much, Nick. I'm really, really excited to be a part of this. Yeah, I saw you share on your Facebook page, and so many people are celebrating for you. Thank you, even dear old mom, right? Yeah, yeah, she's she's pretty proud. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was. Uh, I'm just 
I'm happy to be a part of this, and I really look forward to our discussion, and uh, hope it's beneficial for your listeners. Well, if my audience doesn't really know who you are, could you tell us a little bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing? Yeah, yeah, it's a long, long journey. Um, I, uh, I'm a pastor's kid, so I have grown up uh, in the church my whole life, and uh, even though in my in my younger years, I, I really had uh, no interest in kind of following my father's footsteps. I always thought that, that maybe somewhere down the line that that would be something that might happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I you know went to, went to college and went to Baylor, like you mentioned, I, I really had a, a business focus and uh, still have some, some desires to, to pursue those uh, interests later on in life. But uh, that was my primary focus, and I went and I did a, a, a business degree at Baylor. And, and again, like you said, I, I focused on management. And uh, when I got out, I, uh, I worked in the steel industry for a few years, and uh, it was a, a great opportunity, and I, and I liked that. But I just always had a longing to do something more. Um, and I, I, I actually looked really, really hardly at... Uh, doing an MBA and doing an MDiv, and I, I kind of was deciding between the two, and it was kind of a really interesting story. Um, I was telling my parents about this and about uh, my desire to do both, and my my I was just uncertain as to what I wanted to do, and um, I was praying about it and um, trying to figure out, you know, what would be the best path, and uh, I. I remember very specifically having conversations with my parents about it, and um, I, my dad approached me, um, and basically I had, I, had, I prayed about it, and I, I, I talked to God and said, "Look, God, if you ever want, me, if you want me to do this MBA thing, um, I really need uh, some some extra money in order to take some classes to prepare for the entrance exams and stuff like that." I didn't have at the time. Uh, but if you want me to pursue seminary, I, I really would like the opportunity to preach and kind of see how that how, how that feels. And so it was very interesting. <laughs> I can remember specifically praying this prayer, and then the very next day, I was having a conversation with my parents, and 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 my mom and dad said, "Look, if you have, if you need this extra money to do these classes, like you've talked about, we're willing to give it to you." Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was like, oh, great, there's my answer to prayer. Like, I, that's what I wanted to do. And then the very next day, which was a Sunday, I was sitting down with him again, and my dad said, well, if you ever want the opportunity to preach, let me know, and you can preach on one of my Sunday nights. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it was it was just interesting. Like, in the course of two days, both of these, you know, things that I had prayed about came to fruition, and then I had to, I had to again, pray harder. And it just became clear that, that seminary was the right path for me. And so I just kind of set about pursuing that. And uh, I went to New Orleans and did my MDiv there in Christian apologetics and uh, did it under Dr. Bob Stewart, who was just an incredible mm-hmm. mentor, incredible professor. Just, He's been uh, on the show before. Yeah. He just, uh, an awesome man and a, just a, a great scholar. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I kind of progressed through my MDiv and took several classes from him and, New Orleans was a, a place where they really encouraged uh, hearing viewpoints, and, and I mean, they had the Greer Heard Forum, they had the apologetics conferences, 
Um, I, got, I was exposed to a lot of different scholarship and really solid scholarship. And uh, and I, I, as I went through the MDiv, you know, I just had different people in my life that were kind of affirming that that maybe I needed to go in the direction of, of scholarship as my career rather than, than the pastoral ministry. Uh, my father even affirmed that. And it just kind of was cemented through, you know, the the opinions of people that I really respected. And um, and then, so I, I just decided that that was the direction I wanted to head in. And this, the idea of, of teaching and being in a classroom setting where we're exploring ideas and uh, just being a part of uh, the formation of, of students uh, in, that, in that capacity is just uh, really exciting to me. And so, um, you know, I applied to Asbury and, and I, I was accepted and uh, got here and started working with Dr. Keener. And I think it was about two years in that he asked me to be his teaching assistant. <clears throat> and um, so I've been working with, with him as his TA for, for quite some time. It's like my third year. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, and then in the course of that, we've, we've done this book together and, and gone to India together and gotten to do all sorts of things um, that I never could have dreamed would happen. And it's just been, uh, it's been awesome. And so I'm nearing completion of this degree and, and look forward to kind of getting uh, out on the other side of, of things, not, not being kind of in front of the class instead of a part of it. So I, I look forward to that, that aspect of it. Now, since you mentioned doing some work with uh, Dr. Keener, before we get into the book, I do want to ask, have you ever seen him sleeping before? I mean, I, I'm, I'm really wondering if he does or not. <laughs> he, he does sleep. He holds a little different schedule than most, but uh, he, uh, he does sleep. But when he's not sleeping, he's working. Um, you know, but he, he works a whole lot. He obviously he keeps the Sabbath, too, and he has time for rest. But he is quite the machine mm. when it comes to producing literature for all the rest of us to consume. Um, I, I can remember specifically when we went to India together. Uh, it was a forever flight. And, of course, me, I, I, I'm watching movies. I'm doing everything I can to... <laughs> entertain myself and i swear he he worked the entire time it must have been 15 hours straight uh i don't know i mean he might have dozed off a couple times but it was non-stop <laughs> uh and so uh, he just he's just super committed and that's mm-hmm. his call is he is he is called by god to scholarship mm-hmm. and uh he fulfills <laughs> fulfills that calling as best as he can and mm-hmm. He obviously does a tremendous job, and we all get to benefit from it. So. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's uh, start li- looking at the book here and do some preliminary stuff. Now, if we went back to, say, the 1970s or 80s, we'd have a whole lot of debate going on about the Gospels, as always, but no one was very sure what category to put the Gospels in. I mean, sometime yep. probably late er- 80s, early 90s, I think, a guy named Richard Burridge comes around. What happened here? Well, yeah, you want to back up. I mean, the, the SBL task force on the gospel genre, I think, was in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And you're right. There was just a, a lot of different uh, conclusions mm-hmm. as they were searching for the genre. But even before Burridge, you had guys like Talbert and, and Dio mm-hmm. and Alany 
yeah. who are who are getting there. Um, it, but and honestly, the the whole discussion on genre begins way earlier. It really oh, yeah. begins at the end of uh, the end, like end of the nineteenth century, beginning of the twentieth century. Mm-hmm. Um, you had Ernst Renan and and Botau and those guys that were were saying that the Gospels were some sort of popular biography or just the lives of Jesus, but they weren't necessarily Greco-Roman biographies. Um, but they were there, and they were they were viewing them as as biographies. But then, of course, with with uh, form criticism, you had this idea that they were sui generis and uh, they 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 had no genre at all. Uh, redaction criticism comes along and kind of brings back uh, this idea of the author and. And so then, now we're back kind of to where we started, the 70s and this task force. But anyway, you're right. Burge comes along in, in 92, I believe, with his mm-hmm. first edition. I think his second edition was in 2002. Uh, but he writes a really, in my opinion, extremely compelling argument for the case that the Gospels are to be considered biographies. Um, <clears throat> what he does is he, he takes a look at I think ten ancient biographies. Um, of course, he does Suetonius' *Lives of the Caesars*, which is a has multiple biographies in it, but he focuses on Alexander, I think, and uh, one other. Um, I mean, not, not Alexander, Augustus, and uh, one other. Um, but he's looking at these ten biographies, and he he's observing uh, patterns, characteristics, things, uh, common attributes that they they exhibit, and and then, of course, he's, he's taking what he's observed and he's comparing it also to, to the Gospels. And mm-hmm. he finds that there's, they're congruous enough and the characteristics that they, in the, the patterns and the characteristics that they portray, that they um, should all be considered the same genre. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I mean, uh, his argumentation is is sound, it's extremely evidence-based. I think he does a great job of identifying the, the bones, the structure of what an ancient biography is, and showing how the Gospels map on top of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I, for me, it's been an incredible, incredibly formative book, and it's one that's, that has really changed my entire, the, my course and my studies. Um, and it's helped me kind of narrow down my focus on what I want to mm-hmm. uh, look at specifically. But, you know, one, if I can continue, one thing that, that needs to be mentioned alongside of Burge's work is Dirk Frickenschmidt's work. Uh, Dirk Frickenschmidt, uh, who is the student of, of Klaus uh, Berger, wrote uh, Inve- Evangelium als Biography in 1997. And... Dirk looks at a hundred, like 142 ancient biographies in comparison to to uh, Burge's 10. Mm-hmm. Um, and he finds, it, it, again, he, he's, he's searching for the genre. And he finds all these different, you know, can, you know, things that biographies normally exhibit and does the same thing. They come at it from a little bit different methodology. But they both arrive at the same conclusion. Um, but it's really important to kind of view those two works side by side because you, you get a, a greater um, idea of, of 
of what an ancient biography really is. And mm-hmm. so like, I, you know, birds, again, like I said, gives you kind of the bones and structure. And it's almost like frickin', sh- frickin Schmidt uh, fleshes that out. Like he puts, like he, he kind of explains it a little bit more and gives more of the types of stories that you might find in ancient biographies. Mm-hmm. Uh, both works need to be uh, viewed alongside of one another. And, and to me, the case that they make together is, is really difficult to, to move away from. It would take a work of considerable proportion to, to reverse my uh, idea that the Gospels are, in fact, ancient biographies. And now let's also be clear on what we mean by an ancient Greco-Roman biography, because a lot of times when people hear about it, I think they expect the Gospels being to be read like a modern biography, and that's not going to happen, is it? No, it's not. Yeah, there definitely needs to be distinctions between the two. Um, and again, Burge, Burge does that, and so does Frickenschmidt. I mean, they, they point out uh, the conventions that are really common, um, and they they do a great job. I mean, I guess one of the you know the primary things that we would think uh, that we would find when we read a biography is this kind of cradle to grave uh, structure. You know, where we get the birth account all the way through to the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want every detail we can about this individual. And when we come to, to ancient biographies, we just don't get that all the time. Mm-hmm. They can very easily begin in the in the the middle of the individual's life. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, we look at look at Mark, mm-hmm. uh, look at look at John. Um, so, uh, you know, I look at like something like Xenophon's Agasileus, um, which is a, a much earlier biography. But they don't have to begin uh, with the birth. And Frickenschmidt actually points that out that uh, birth narratives aren't necessarily all that important. What's probably more important might be genealogies, really. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, kind of seeing where this individual comes from and lineage, but uh, that's one thing. And so then you can get in other things like the arrangement of material. Uh, it, don't, it doesn't have to be this the strict chronological arrangement of material. Uh, you can arrange things topically, um, and and that kind of goes along with what we would we envision when, when we think about how these things were written. Mm-hmm. Uh, they weren't written on in word processors. Right. So, so if the, if the author has something, he's writing something down, um, you know, and he, he, he's not going to scrap his whole work, you know, to then go back so he can write it in order. He's going to continue on and include it. Um, uh, maybe if it's chronological or not. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, those are just a, a few things. Uh, but yes, it's, they're, they're different. It, this mm-hmm. is not a, there, there's a specific difference between, Ancient biography and modern biography. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, uh, Norman Geisler, when he started going after Mike Lacona, had a few criticisms of the idea of the Gospels being Greco-Roman biographies. And I'd like to go through a few of them. One of them is that uh, the Greco-Roman genre allows for legend and error. But if you're a Christian that believes in inerrancy, you don't allow for error, at least to be shown in the Gospels. So... Obviously, the Gospels can't be Greco-Roman biographies because they don't allow for legend and error. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think you're, in that case, you're maybe making genre into something that it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's not. You're focusing more on on content rather than than genre. Mm-hmm. 
uh, it's not like every single ancient biography was exactly the same, right? Or followed, you know, this specific recipe. Uh, mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I don't necessarily agree with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, and it all kind of depends on who the individual writing is mm-hmm. and how good of a historian or biographer were they. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not. I, I think that I'm not. I'm not in agreement with with what Dyson says there. Yeah. Uh, my thinking was it. Seems kind of ridiculous to me because it's kind of saying like Plutarch is sitting down and he's writing a Greco-Roman biography. Says, okay, okay, I gotta find some place I can put the error in in here because my biography yeah. has to err somewhere. It's exactly. Greco-Roman biographies, like any other work, there could err, but that doesn't mean they would necessarily err. Yeah, you're right. You're right. That's an mm-hmm. important distinction. Mm-hmm. And another criticism often brought up is that the gospel writers had plenty of material from the Old Testament and such, and they would use that. They would not go to a pagan genre outside of the Bible in order to tell the story of Jesus. Yeah, I just don't. I, I don't agree with that either. I mean, a genre is 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 merely a vehicle to pass the information along. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's nothing inherently ungodly about a genre. I mean, it's just yeah. It, it's it's a form. You know, it's just mm-hmm. like Paul, Paul writes. You know, letters. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> there's that's another genre that's that's used that is used widely in antiquity, and we wouldn't pick it. Paul's decision to write letters as if he's trying to copy uh, pagan literature. Mm-hmm. And it's just, like, genre is, is not, I, I wouldn't paint genre in that way or or, mm-hmm. or say that it's, it's some sort of uh, uh, pagan document just simply because it follows a, a specific genre. Yeah. Uh, I have a thought I think one of my replies was to say, where if we want to go this route, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and Aramaic, but you don't see that in the Gospels. Those are written in the pagan Greek language of the time. Now, moving on over more to a more skeptical position here, um, Matthew Ferguson over at the Kelsus blog has written a critique, and he focuses mainly on Chapter 6 of Volume Alpha, a targeted comparison, which, by the way, I think we should point out at this point, this book is not is edited by you two. You had several other students getting to write the book, didn't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We served primarily as the editors of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, we had several contributors uh, that, were, that are currently doctoral students, uh, some that have since gone on. Uh, and graduated, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, the idea was, I mean, a lot of this comes from seminars uh, mm-hmm. of Dr. Keener's, and that we just, you know, are all writing on similar topics, and uh, so we've we've just kind of mm-hmm. pieced these these works together. But mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I think we both we obviously both have information in there, mm-hmm. or, or chapters in there, but <clears throat> mm-hmm. but yeah, they're. This is a primarily a uh, selection of, of papers from students. And of course, you have Steve Walton has a contribution, Michael Kona has a contribution, Holly yeah. Carey. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, primarily it's a, it's a student. Um, well, the chapter under consideration is by Q. 
Keener. And I also want to say, before I forget, I, it slipped my mind earlier when you talked about uh, you've been talking so much about Richard Burridge. I have actually also been in communication with him, and sometime in the future, he's got another work coming out about the Gospels as Greco-Roman biographies, so listeners out there, Richard Burridge is going to sometime be on the show when that book is coming out, and we're going to be talking about that further. So if this topic really interests you, you'd be watching for that one as well. If I add something, you know, Nick, I I don't know if you knew this, but Dr. Keener has a book coming out uh, in the fall called Christobiography, and it's it's going to be pretty pretty important. Uh, But it's it's basically him devoting an entire monograph to to the, the understanding of, of history within biography, and and it's going to be a, a really solid contribution. Well, I guess I'll be getting in touch with Dr. Keener shortly after the show, then. Yeah. <laughs> now, now, one of the comments I often made about the Gospels here, and this is one I see plenty of times, is that when you read some other Greco-Roman biographies like Suetonius or Plutarch or others, they list who their eyewitness sources are. The Gospels don't do that. Is that a problem? Uh, not necessarily. I think you can look at it from the standpoint of, of maybe intended audience. Mm-hmm. Um, when authors or ancient authors were, were writing for an audience of a, maybe a higher level mm-hmm. uh, who actually had access to these sources, mm-hmm. um, they would they'd probably name them, name those uh, authors were more likely to name those sources so that the, if the audience were to maybe go back and check his work, uh, he wouldn't be shown to be, you know, handling these sources incorrectly. Um, and the gospels, you, I, I don't think it's a crazy statement to say these weren't necessarily intended for, uh, a high level audience. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, maybe, maybe Luke, uh, but, for the most for the most part, this is definitely a popular level audience, and naming sources isn't necessarily going to prove anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's really that big of a deal. I mean, obviously, it's obvious that they're they're using sources. Uh, so I don't. Yeah, I think that's that's probably part of the reason why that that sources aren't really named. Mm-hmm. So, and I, I don't really see that as a that's a problem. So, mm. uh, I'm also thinking, just looking at this and thinking off the cuff here and such, and thinking, who exactly would these sources be? It's like, well, I went to Jerusalem and I talked to Bartimaeus, and people were like, yeah, um, who exactly is Bartimaeus? That's a pretty common name. And when you're talking about the people of that Plutarch and Suetonius and other side, those would be extremely well-known people. And the extremely well-known people, meanwhile, for the Gospels, they probably don't want to contribute. I mean, I, I seriously doubt Caiaphas and Pilate are going to sit down for an interview with Luke and say, "Now, tell me what you saw exactly when Jesus was being crucified." <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, yeah. So uh, I don't know. Maybe also you could look at the fact that, like, uh, the time that these these were written. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're writing a a, uh, a biography about an individual who lived, you know, with really close proximity to mm-hmm. to the time that you're writing, you don't necessarily like it. Might have it might just be such accepted uh, tradition about the individual that you don't necessarily have to name your sources. Mm-hmm. Now, dealing with a subject that lived 
a couple hundred years prior, uh, and you're dealing with multiple accounts, and you're having to weigh those accounts, it might be it might be better as a historian to, to list them out or to name them so that your reader can have a better understanding of who you're interacting with and uh, you know the kind of the, the authority of the figures that you you're citing. Yeah, I think you could say about things that are common knowledge, like if we uh, wrote a biography of Donald Trump today and said, President Donald Trump, no one's going to look and say, what is your source for him being the president? I I really don't think he was. I mean, even if someone thinks the election was illegitimate, which I don't, it, it's kind of common knowledge. No one's disputing that. Yeah, right. And I, I think also we could go with what Bauckham has said on this kind of question, and by the way, listeners, Bauckham has been on the show twice talking about his books, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, both editions, but um, I think we could go with what he says, and that if a character is named in the Gospels, the names drop out some, he thinks, I believe, as the people involved dies, so those people being named are the eyewitnesses, like, for instance, when uh, Luke 24 has Jesus talking with, with a Cleopas and his friend. It could be the friend isn't named because the friend has since died and Cleopas is the only living witness, so that's the only reason to mention him. Yeah, Falcon is an incredible scholar. Mm. He's got some, some fascinating ideas. Uh, it's it's possible, what he's saying. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, that, that's that's a possibility. Mm. I would I would be open to entertaining that. Um, so, yeah. Okay. Uh, another perspective problem that Ferguson says he sees is that the Gospels always seem to speak in at least the at least the synoptics do in third person instead of first person. But Suetonius and Plutarch will sometimes use a first person. The whole idea is this is someone trying to describe themselves as sort of the omniscient narrator as it were. Is this a problem? Uh, I don't think so. I think you can have uh, multiple uh, methods or means of characterization in ancient biographies. Um, I don't think mm-hmm. you you have sometimes where the individual inserts his, himself into the narrative and says, I think so-and-so about X. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you can also just simply you know, kind of remove yourself from the narrative and characterize your your subject through their words and deeds. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't necessarily have to always interject and uh, you put yourself into mm-hmm. you know the narrative. Uh, it's not necessarily a an absolute must have for every ancient biography. Mm-hmm. Now, something he also says is that Keener makes the same where he says, there is no intrinsic historical reason to rule out the possibility that Mark depended on Peter, as their tradition suggests. And he has a problem with that, saying that just because it's possible doesn't mean it's the same as identifying his sources. But I, I find this question particularly interesting, because when Mike, was do- Mike Lacona was doing some research for a debate and such, He asked me to go to Emory University and look at commentaries and such from the past 50 years and see where the majority of scholars stood on the authorship of Mark. And I believe the majority do indeed say Mark 
is by Mark, most likely. I mean, not, not anything of 100% certainty. And he probably used Peter as a source. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, now, kind of, you stated your question at, at the very beginning of that. Yeah. You maybe re- restate your specific question. And yeah. Then... yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole thing was saying, like, you know, that uh, Mark, uh, the, it, it can't be ruled out that Mark possibly used Peter as a source, but, you know, just saying possibly doesn't mean we've made the case there. Well, of course not. No, but, uh, I mean, you have a attestation by Papias that this is what's going on. Either you believe it or you don't. I mean, it doesn't, mm-hmm. there's, not, there's not a whole lot to, you can't confirm it, nor can you reject it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if Papias proves true in, in other areas, then there's mm-hmm. really no reason to think that he's lying here. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I don't think it's unreasonable to side with Papias and think that that uh, Mark followed closely what what Peter was teaching and uh, the people were were wanting something written down and and Mark went about it trying to do it as best as that he could not and again not necessarily in chronological order but uh, Wanting to to write it down as again as best as he could, which mm-hmm. is what Papias says. I don't I don't think that's a real yeah. uh, difficult thing to grasp or a big leap, you know, to to lay hold of that and say that Peter was a, mm-hmm. a huge source for Mark. That isn't. Yeah, I also think it's quite odd that I mean, I think too many scholars are too quick to dismiss the church fathers as sources and such, first off. And second, that if you are wanting to name the author of a gospel for the church, Mark is a very unlikely candidate you would go to. That you'd say, hey, let's uh, pick this uh, boy who's not named in the gospels, and what we have about him in Acts, he is apparently a sissy boy who ran back home to Mama at the start of the missionary journeys and caused a split between two of the church's first great missionaries. That's our guy. We're going to go with him. Yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, that's a very odd choice. If you're, <laughs> if you're going to label someone as, as, as an author of a gospel, I, mm. I would have or why not just just say it was Peter's? Yeah, you know, really was you know Peter really stood behind the majority of it. Just say it was Peter's. Of but course, they didn't, of course there are some people who say, well, they couldn't because you already had the Gospel of Peter then. Uh, but yeah. that to me, I, I don't think there's any reason to date the Gospel of Peter to the first century. But there's plenty of reason to date Mark to that. Yeah, you're right. Now we can also say that sometimes they use. Some Greco-Roman writers did use earlier written sources, but we're told the Gospels don't talk about their earlier written sources, and there's all kinds of speculation about these sources. Q, M, L, pre-Markan passion narrative, things of that sort and such. I mean, if, a gospel, if any Gospels are using any of these sources, why aren't they cited? Um, again, I... I I hinted that at it a little bit earlier when I was talking about uh, the difference between, you know, kind of high literature versus popular level literature, um, and the fact that maybe this was such accepted tradition about Jesus that it wasn't really necessary to 
the site. People knew where it was coming from. Um, but, you know, exactly why they didn't cite it, uh, I don't know. You can, you can posit a whole different, a whole bunch of, of different uh, reasons, but we don't really know. Mm. Um, of course, you know, Luke is saying specifically that there's, there are a lot of sources out there, um, you know, that he, he relied upon or, or was aware of in his compilation of his document. Um, but of course he doesn't go on mm-hmm. and name them specifically. Uh, so, you know, exactly why they didn't is, is a mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll, we'll never know. Uh, but the fact that they did use sources is undeniable, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, which says something about their concern for preserving uh, historical information mm-hmm. or what they thought was historical information. Uh, you can, I mean, Matthew, but how much does he use of Mark? 95% of Mark? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure, but it said that he uses quite a lot of Mark. He's not interested in, in just inventing mm-hmm. events you know, mm-hmm. wholesale. Right. It's just not, and that's consistent with what we see in ancient yeah. biographies. Yeah. And we also, there's also a claim that the Gospels can seem to be too dependent on one another and not independent, which, I mean, to me, this one strikes me as also kind of odd because if the Gospels seem to be any, seem to be different, any, where there are contradictions, if they seem to be too similar, where there is collusion, I mean, heads heads you... When in tarot, you lose that kind of thing. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, um, yeah. I they are obviously again that they Matthew and and Luke are utilizing Mark and, and most likely Q, um, but that doesn't. It's not a concern for me. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, you know, you can also see that they're they have specific agendas. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not like you know, redaction criticism has shown that. So we we know that that they weren't just blindly copying because they, mm-hmm. you know, they weren't just piecing together random pieces of tradition. Uh, they had specific uh, motivations um, mm-hmm. and reasons for writing. Of course, that's that's consistent with all ancient biographies. They mm-hmm. all have uh, whether it's political motivations or or you know didactic motivations or uh, polemical motivation. I mean, they all have apologetic, you know, they all have reasons for writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. I believe when we had Jonathan Pennington on the show, one thing he told me is that the, the ancients were not interested in unbiased history. They wanted people who really had an interest in what was going on and then people would only write about things they had an interest in Anyway, I mean, sorry, March Madness may be going on, but you are not going to see any writing about it on my blog because I frankly just do not care. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, ancient historiography, you know, has as one of its aims to uh, promote certain agendas. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that that's been proven time and time again. Mm-hmm. Um primarily by extolling the virtues of, of people in the past and and hoping that their readers would then mimic those virtues in some way mm-hmm. uh, or look look at them as, as something that should be repeated. 
Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not interested in mm-hmm. objective histor- history. I mean, they're, right. they're very much interested in it, and they say it time and time and time again uh, throughout the prefaces to their works and in different places that, you know, this is the, the aim of history is to preserve the truth and to write a factual account of the events. And it's just, mm-hmm. you, you don't, even though that there, there are agendas, agendas and, and biases, doesn't mean that you necessarily have to then just completely cast into doubt all other, all the rest of the material. Mm-hmm. Yeah, N.T. Wright has said before that just because the scorekeeper of a game might have a team he wants to win, it doesn't mean you say he's automatically giving you the wrong score. <laughs> yeah, that's a good analogy. And uh, the point has also been made that if you want to look at Holocaust museums, Jews have the very best Holocaust museums out there, but I- I'm quite convinced they have a bias as well. Yeah, you think? Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, that, that's a good. That's a good point. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, you can have a you can have a bias and still have have an interest in preserving history. That that just they're not incompatible. Yeah, in fact, couldn't we even say that their bias could make them be possibly even more accurate? Because then this is the most important message that they will ever deliver, and it's a message that many times they could be putting their lives on the line for, so they might want to make sure they get it right. Uh, yeah, I guess you could say that, but, but you, it cuts both ways. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that that bias can be a problem in some areas. Like one of the, one of the biographies that I'm looking at closely, and whether or not it's a biography exactly, is is up for debate, but is Xenophon's Agasileus. Um, and it's pretty obvious that he's got, he's got a bias there. Um, and it's, it's to kind of present his, his hero, Agasileus in the most positive light possible. And mm-hmm. what's really interesting is that he even has, uh, Xenophon covers Agasileus's life in both the Hellenica, which is his history of mm-hmm. the time period, and he devotes a specific, like a biography, to the individual. So you get to see the same author's treatment of the of the subject in two different genres. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's obvious that that Xenophon's treatment of Agasileus in the biography is is overly encomiastic. Mm-hmm. It it goes it goes. I don't know if you're looking at things strictly from an objective historic. His, history standpoint it goes over the top and it it says some things that uh, are cast him in a certain light where he can do no wrong and in and the yeah. same kind of sections in his history he's more even-handed and uh he just he he excludes events in his biography that includes in his history that maybe cast agasleus in a slightly different light um, so it's been an interesting thing to look at mm-hmm. but but you're right. I mean, bias can can work both mm-hmm. ways. It can either distort, or it can, mm-hmm. you know, maybe it can help you preserve on a different level in mm-hmm. some instances. Yeah. One other common criticism I often hear about the gospels is the gospels are anonymous. They don't say who wrote them and such. But isn't this also the case for far more ancient biographies than we realize? 
Um, yeah, well, there's a, there are a lot of, a lot of works, um, that are anonymous. Uh, there are a lot of ancient biographies, uh, the life of Alcibiades, the life of Demosthenes, these certain works mm-hmm. of the second century, um, that we're just not necessarily sure who wrote them. Um, and they appear in later records mm-hmm. of works that were written about the subject, and they're not given a specific author. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it's just because the information just gets lost over time. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are instances, yes, of, of ancient biographies that are anonymous, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in uh, E.P. Sanders's book, The Historical Figure of Jesus, he says, The authors probably want to eliminate interest in who wrote the story and to focus the reader on the subject. More important, the claim of an anonymous history was higher than that of a named work. In the ancient world, an anonymous book, rather like an encyclopedia article today, implicitly claimed complete knowledge and reliability. It would have reduced the impact of a gospel of Matthew had we often written, this is my version, instead of, this is what Jesus said and did. Yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's an interesting point. Yeah, mm-hmm. I like that. Um, mm-hmm. tough, to, tough to argue against. Dr. Sanders. <laughs> yeah, I, I also like to point out when people say this, I say, look, it's not like you have this church in, say, Antioch one day, and they're sitting around, and all of a sudden there's a knock on the door, and they open up, and there's a gospel, and we say, well, we have no idea who wrote this, but it seems pretty good. Let's go with it. Yeah, I, I think that the, the names were attached pretty early on. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in order for them to gain as much traction as they did in the early church, uh, I think they they were pretty aware of who wrote these, mm-hmm. who was behind them. Um, so yeah. I, I, as, uh, they are anonymous, yes, we can't deny that, but I don't think that they they circulated anonymously uh, for very long. And haven't some scholars like Hingar also even questioned that they were truly anonymous, that the names could have been very well included, but they wouldn't be part of a body of text that would be copied. Yeah, yeah. Martin Hingle definitely argues that. Um, uh, so he's he's one that, that puts the uh, idea that they were circulated um, under the, the name of the author very early. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, he, he, that's a great resource. The name of the book is completely flipping my mind right now. I don't know why. If you remember it later, you can give it, you can be browsing Amazon or something while we're talking here, see if you can find it. But, I mean, what strikes me so much about this whole thing is that I think I've told skeptics many times that if they would just treat the Gospels according to the same standard, they treat every other ancient work the Gospels would pa- would probably pass with flying colors. Say that again. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. That if the uh, if skeptics of the Gospels treated them just like any other ancient biography of time, the Gospels would really, I think, pass with flying colors. Yeah, yeah, I I, I think so. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, when you get down into the weeds, so to speak, and you start evaluating. You know certain claims that that authors make. Uh, you can quibble over the details. Of course, the the biggest issue in 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 evaluating the gospels for their reliability are are obviously the miracles. Mm-hmm. And 
the resurrection and issues like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and kind of maybe make some people, people approaching these, these books from a non-Christian perspective, think that they're, they're maybe more mythography or something like that. Um, but since you brought that up, let's go into that a little bit then. What would you say if someone says, I can't trust these as historical, they include miracles? Oh, that's a, that's a huge question. Um, <laughs> I, would, I would casually point them towards Keener's two-volume work on miracles. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I am of the opinion that miracles happen today. Uh, obviously, Keener is. There's, there's a tremendous amount of evidence for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I just, I don't necessarily think that simply because they include miracles that, that those parts are ahistorical. So, mm-hmm. But that's, that's my perspective. That's where I'm coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to recognize that if, if someone's never seen a miracle or, or never really heard of miracles outside of what's recorded in the Bible and Mm-hmm. and hasn't done a tremendous amount of research on the subject, then you're coming at it from a different viewpoint. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's just, it's all you can do is just kind of explain to them, hey, this is this is what I've seen, this is my experience, um, and they have to decide that for themselves. Um, mm-hmm. But obviously for me, uh, miracles in the Gospels are not a deterrent to their reliability. Yeah, we uh, we have interviewed Craig Keener for I was listening on his book Miracles. So yeah. if you want to hear what he said about that, just go back and look it up. It's in the archives here. Now, I also uh, when I encounter someone who says this, if that's their claim, I like to put them on the defensive. Say, okay, if you want to say miracles can't happen, give an argument for that. Why should I think that? And if they can't, and say, well, then we should be open to the possibility that maybe miracles can happen. Yeah, that's, that's one way of going about it, for sure. And also, if we read other Greco-Roman biographies, we do see events in there that would not naturally fall under the whole materialistic claim, wouldn't we? Yeah, there, there, are, there are some mentions of kind of the more fantastical, uh, elements and so um, it's not like miracles or the the miracles that are in the gospels are the only miracles that are ever attested in, in ancient literature. Um, so uh, yeah, I, don't, I mean they are they are in other ancient biographies. Yeah, and miracles necessarily that doesn't necessarily make you know them historical. Right. In the Gospels or in other ancient biographies, just because they're there, mm-hmm. uh, you have to you know, evaluate the claims individually and um, hopefully find something that uh, confirms it in an independent literary source, which is almost impossible. <laughs> <laughs> There's also a point that, uh, that um, miracles, just like today, have their own skeptics in the past. It wasn't that you present a miracle claim and everyone believed it. There were skeptics just as much as there are today. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it wasn't that. Uh, there were definitely people back then that, that questioned the authenticity uh, of miracle accounts. It was, mm. This is not a new phenomenon uh, mm. in our day and time. So uh, some historians would 
you know, think that they don't have a, they didn't have a place necessarily in, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in serious works of, of history, historical scholarship back mm-hmm. then, just as they would say today. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah, nothing new. Yeah, I, I also like to, when I talk to these kinds of people, just ask them claims, because they usually say, back then, people just didn't know better, they didn't have the science that we have today and such, and I mean, people who listen to the show know that I do affirm miracles, like the virgin birth and such, but I like to say, okay, if you're a socialist, could you please tell me when it was exactly that scientists discovered that virgins don't give birth, or when did they discover that people can't walk on water? Because so I can guarantee you, the ancients, they knew all these things just as much as you and I do. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't really discover something like that. So, um, mm-hmm. miracles mm-hmm. in themselves cannot be repeated <laughs> in a lab. Mm-hmm. Now, looking at the book here, I mean, one of the things I'd like to ask is, when we read the Gospels, if we go to them as Greco-Roman biographies and such, how does that really change our reading of the Gospels? Well, um, I think what it does primarily is that it helps us to, to, to view the Gospels as, as having historical intentions. Mm-hmm. Um, they weren't novels. Mm-hmm. Uh, they weren't mythography. Uh, they had historical in- intentions, um, and just how historical they were is, is ultimately the question. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what my my dissertation is is really trying to focus on is this idea of, of okay, the Gospels are ancient biographies. How reliable were ancient biographies? What are we? So what? What does that mm-hmm. even mean? Yeah. Um, and so you just, it, it takes a lot uh, of, of really detailed research, and you have to look at each biography on an individual basis, because every historian and biographer is different, and they all approach their source material different. They're, some of them are, are more prone to stick to their sources closer. Some are lazier. Some are, you know, um, aware of more sources. Some are aware of less. Some are you know, wanting to kind of play up the encomiastic nature of, of their biography. Some aren't. Uh, so every author is different. And mm-hmm. it's, it's difficult to kind of have this, uh, this, like, not framework, it's not the right word, but this one thing that you can then say, Oh, because the Gospels are biographies, therefore we should read them like as such. Uh, because of, there are there are some differences in ancient biographies over over the course of, of time. But mm-hmm. again, I, I I get back to this idea that they have historical intention, mm-hmm. um, and we can clearly see that uh, just in the way that they handle their sources. Um, it's just it's undeniable that ancient biographies used sources and used them critically. And so they're not intended to be fictitious works about an individual. Mm-hmm. So it, it's it kind of 
it puts you in a, in a maybe the a different mindset. Uh, so I, I think that's that's kind of one one reason or one thing that you could you could you could say about the so what aspect of the gospels being ancient biographies. You know, I I think that's very important. You say it that way because if I've had any major criticism about the church today, it's that you open up the gospels, for instance, and you go to a text and you jump straight to the application for a text and say, you know, there there could be some great applications to this. No doubt there are, but maybe one of the first things we should say in our churches is this kind of stuff actually really happened. Here are some reasons why I why we think can know what happened. Here's a little bit more of a historical setting and such. And now we have all this. Let's see how the text applies to our daily lives today. Yeah, yeah. Certainly, the the authors think mm-hmm. it happened. Yeah, I, I think that's that's a big thing. Is mm-hmm. that they they weren't out to just create right. uh, fictitious accounts of of the life of Jesus. They, they wanted to preserve tradition and they wanted to pass it along, um, mm-hmm. as, as best as they could. And they weren't, you know, they just weren't out to invent events. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, again, you're kind of getting into understanding the intention behind the creation of the gospels. Now, when I look here on uh, page 33 of the introduction, you do have some some works here that you say are, are more likely uh, historical novels and such. Sure. And those are like Xenophon's Cyropedia or Clesphenides' Alexander Romance and most interesting to me, Phil Stratus's Life of Apollonius. And this one strikes me as most interesting because so many people say, where... Jesus and Apollonius were so incredibly similar that there was borrowing going on. Sure. Um, you know, I, the, his specific work is, or this specific work is, is a little bit different than mm-hmm. your average ancient biography. Mm-hmm. Uh, primarily, it, it's different in, in both length and structure. Um, it's just a. I don't know. It just it doesn't it doesn't necessarily present itself as a as a normal as a normal biography. Um, so I and I mean I, I would just kind of I would kind of point towards that. Um, I, I don't necessarily think that there's any kind of borrowing going on. I thought there could be some going on, but if there's borrowing going on, it's, it's probably the going the direction. other way. Yes, because the life of Apollonius is later in yeah. writing down the Gospels, and it's 150 years or so, I think, after Apollonius lived, as it's written down, which, let's uh, look brief. Well, before we start looking briefly at that, I'd like to remind everyone that you are listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. My guest is Edward T. Wright today, talking about the book he co-edited, Biographies in Jesus. What does it mean for the Gospels to be biographies? But if you're here next week, we've got another marriage show lined up. Yeah, I got a lot of them, and they couldn't make it for February, so they're coming back again, coming back later on. Um, 
Debbie and Tom Bartos are going to be my guests. They're, they got a new book out, Cherishing Us. And we'll be looking at that and seeing how we can cherish us. Now, another common objection given to the Gospels, I think that's worth mentioning since we brought this up about Paulinius, is, and it really boggles my mind, this is seen as a major objection, but the Gospels are written decades after the events that they describe. Um, yeah, but that doesn't indicate a, a historicity at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have you have biographies that were written centuries mm-hmm. after the, when the individual lived that still contain historical information. It doesn't the fact that that the Gospels were written by individuals who were con- essentially contemporaries with their subject should be viewed as as a plus. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that they were written so closely after the time of uh, Jesus' life is a definite plus. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't... Decades is, is nothing. I, I, yeah. there's, there's plenty of ancient biographies that were written maybe, like I said, centuries after the fact, um, that still contain historical information. I mean, you look at Plutarch's... Plutarch writes a biography of Agasileus. Um, and if you read it, he's he's consistently handling different sources um, and trying to present uh, a biography on, on a subject that's as accurate as possible. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's, it's free from bias or encomium or anything like that. Uh, but the whole argument or or dissatisfaction in the Gospels because they were written a few decades after the fact is, I don't know, it's, it's not that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. I, I often tell people that uh, we live in what's known as kind of like the Gutenberg galaxy. I mean, yeah. we, we live in a time where when something happens majorly and such, you write it down immediately. I mean, if something had happened... Like when the Parkland shooting took place, you could have read about it on the internet minutes later, with stories being written up and everything. Everyone knew about it, but in the ancient world, it didn't work that way. I, I tell people, like, if you're going to get out the story of Jesus, you have two different means you can do about. You can go with oral tradition using orality, or you can do it in word. Now let's compare these. The oral method. It's free, it's quick, it is reliable, despite what people think, and it can reach everyone who can read, who can understand the language. The written way, it takes a long time, it costs a lot of money, and it reaches only people who can read, and everyone else has to depend on those readers. If you have to choose one of those methods, which one are you going to choose? Yeah, yeah, you're right. Um... In antiquity, oral tradition was a huge, huge aspect or element of, the, of their life. And passing that along and retelling of stories, of course, is also their primary means of entertainment. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I don't see any problems with, with, uh, with understanding that they're using oral tradition and, and the fact that it's, it's reliable back then, uh, more so than, I mean, people give it credit today. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I, yeah, I, I don't, I don't have any problems with kind of with viewing it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I like what you said about the Ghost Bros actually being contemporaries, because one of the biggest things on the internet you can sadly see, unfortunately, is Jesus mythicism. And the whole thing of, well, there are no contemporary sources for Jesus. Well, we have at least four of them, the Gospels, and if you add in the writings of Paul, we have even more of them. Yeah, I, Jesus' existence is, is confirmed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, there's, I don't think there's any way to get really get around that. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to look at just the sources that we have... Um, if you wipe out the Gospels, I guess, you could maybe maybe get around it, but there's there's no doubt that Jesus existed. If you were to compare the Gospels historically with, say, the writings of Plutarch, or as you do, or as is done in one chapter, Themistocles and Herodotus and Thucydides, how would the Gospels measure up? Well, that's a that's a huge question, mm-hmm. um, and one I don't necessarily think that I can mm-hmm. I can specifically answer, and that's a big part of my dissertation. Yeah, um, is just trying to establish a a baseline mm-hmm. of how reliable were these ancient biographies, and then mapping, uh, kind of applying the same methodology to the Gospels, mm-hmm. and I'm just right in the thick of that right now. Yeah. So. Um, I would, I could answer it better in the fall, uh, but, uh, right now in terms of saying anything definitively, how reliable are the Gospels in comparison to other ancient biographies is a, a question I can't answer. Uh, um, uh, but it, it's something that I, I'm, I'm working towards, mm-hmm. uh, loved, uh, you know, the, the whole point of my, my dissertation is to kind of start in and start exploring this initially and then once i i'm looking at you know a handful of biographies but like i mentioned earlier in the podcast there's over 120 biographies mm-hmm. so even even if we look at at one or two or three or 10 or mm-hmm. or 20 we still have a long way to go before we can say anything definitively about how the gospels how reliable the gospels are in comparison to other ancient biographies it's a it's a huge undertaking and i'm I'm just trying to get started. We can look at the Gospels and compare them, con- compare certain conventions, I guess, mm-hmm. and kind of look at the way that they handle their sources, the way that they they might alter data here and there in comparison to the way the other ancient biographies do, uh, um, and map them that way. But to say anything definitively, it, it, there's a lot more work that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, yeah. you know, we'd be glad to have you come back on in the fall if your research is done by then and talk about this topic a little bit more. Yeah, of course. Uh, like I said, even then, like, um, you know, I'm looking at at a handful of biographies, uh, and then I'm also looking at uh, the Gospel of, of John uh, and doing a comparison there, but... <laughs> Even after this comparison, like it's just an initial exploration. I mean, there is so much work that needs to be done, um, which is is part of why it's you know so exciting to me. So, 
you know. Um, oh, but yeah, yeah, I would love, I would, I would love to come back. Home. Yeah, I also like something in this book that you go through, and I, mean, I, I wasn't familiar with most of it, but you have uh, these comparative charts where you look at different things in different biographies, and you see how they're similar and how they're different. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm sure this ties in as well with Mike Lacona's research on why are there differences in the Gospels, mm-hmm. that, that there are allowed for minor variations in accounts, aren't there? I think so. I think this is something that Keener points out in the book, is that ancient historians weren't just overly concerned mm-hmm. with minor variations in detail. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just, sometimes it's unavoidable. Maybe there's... Uh, a lapse of memory, you know, mm-hmm. maybe there's just, uh, you're writing down something and, you know, you're, you've got this massive project that you're working on and you, you, you say something incorrectly. Well, you're not going to scrap the project. You can't, you can't, you can't just delete your word document or go mm-hmm. back and yeah. uh, delete what you've said, the last mm-hmm. paragraph and start over. You can't do that. So, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, there's, there were variations, uh, for sure, mm-hmm. uh, but again, like like Keener points out, there just there wasn't a just a, a they weren't overly concerned about about minor variations. But that's not to say that they weren't yeah. concerned about historical accuracy. They were, and that's yeah. that's it's been pointed out. But mm-hmm. uh, there's definitely going to be variation in accounts, uh, especially if you're dealing with with oral tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just the nature of it. That doesn't yeah. mean that they can't get a tremendous amount of material right, but you know, it's just it's just people see things from different perspectives. Mm. Uh, so, um, yeah, I, I, so yeah, there's there's when you sit there and you you take an ancient biography and you compare it to other sources that include the same the materials about the subject. There's definitely going to be to be differences, but there's a there's a lot of I guess different explanations for those differences other than just error. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So yeah, I I also use as an example when I talk about this. In this case, it's one of the same offer. In this case, myself that if Ali and I were sitting here, say, watching Netflix or such something, there's a knock on the door. Look, it's uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and. I'm naturally all eager and such. They come in, come in, come in. And we have us a good little chat together. And after we leave, I'll make two phone calls. The first will be to my parents to tell them about what happened. Because, I mean, you saw your parents posting on your Facebook. Your parents always want to know what's going on and such and hear about your accomplishments. The second will be to my other parents, my in-laws. Mm-hmm. You know, when I call my parents, they're going to get a good basic account because they know what I do, but a lot of times they say, son, what you're saying it just goes right over our heads. We don't understand it that much and such. My in-laws live in this world. I'll call them. They will get a much more detailed account. The accounts, as far as I'm concerned, are... The same. They're both accurate. They're telling the same story and such. But one of them has more detail 
because of the audience involved. Yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah, there's just there are are a multitude of reasons why accounts can appear differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, the, the, it, it seems. It go ahead. It doesn't. It doesn't excuse the differences. I mean, the, the differences are still there, and they're, yeah. they're fun to look at, and they're fun to kind of explore why things mm-hmm. are the way they are, uh, especially when you start comparing John to the Synoptics. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's definitely issues there that uh, are a cause for, I guess, concern or, or puzzlement. Um, you don't, you don't mm-hmm. deny that. You don't just brush over them and, and give some explanation, well... That's just the way things were done back then. That's not appropriate. You know, somebody that's really interested in the material that's coming at it from a skeptical perspective, you, you, you talk to them about it. You Mm. explore it with them. Uh, You, you don't, you don't shy away from, from it. Right. Um, And so, uh, yeah. You know, when we talk about working out the differences in the gospels and such, I remember my wife asking about something when we went to see Mike do his latest debate with Bart Ehrman, where mm-hmm. Ehrman apparently said, like, you know, you can go for the Gospels and such, and you can take this here and that here, and you can put them all together and say, this is what happened in the life of Jesus. But if you do that, you're really writing your own Gospel. And she's asking me, am I doing that? I said, "Huh? every historian has to do that. We have to take the different sources and put them together. It doesn't mean we're writing our own gospel or anything. It's just we're getting an account from four different sources and we're piecing them together. It's not disparaging any one of the prior gospels at all. Yeah, yeah. Historical reconstruction—that's that's the business of of an historian. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, that's, we we do do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but I I don't know. I I enjoy looking at at the differences. Mm-hmm. Uh, I enjoy trying to kind of not only reconstruct, but also understand why, you know, why, why does John do some of the things that he does? Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> it's just fascinating, uh, to look at. So, but you know, John, John has a, a theological agenda, uh, and it, in his gospel, and mm-hmm. he's trying to characterize or portray Jesus in a certain light. Um, and he does that in a way that he, he shapes his material, mm-hmm. but that's also the way that that's how ancient biographers did things. Um, yeah. so, you know, there are some people that do raise objections against the gospels by saying that they're theological writings instead of historical writings. Uh, I guess, I mean, but that's, it doesn't, something can have an agenda mm-hmm. um, and it doesn't necessarily make it a historical um, the gospels are, are clearly trying to to relay information about Jesus' life uh, who he was you know who he hung out with where he lived where he traveled what he did um, what he was like um, it's not I think you could you can classify it as a you know, a theological document and a historical document. They're not mutually exclusive. Uh, it doesn't, you can say something has a specific agenda and something is still uh, trying to give an accurate account of, of that person's life. Um, 
just because it has theological content doesn't mean that it's necessarily a historical. Yeah, yeah I, I was going to say, I think that is one of the big mistakes that we make that we say, that we say theological, therefore it couldn't be historical. I mean, who says? So you're buying something that has a theological implication, therefore it can't be historical? I mean, who's made this rule? And what if the individual's purpose in life was to, you know, present himself? <laughs> I don't know. You know, like, of course, it's yeah. kind of a, a, you know, terms that are, that are don't really work out there. But, uh, you know, if, if someone has, has as their aim to, to present uh, themselves in a way that, that maybe mirrors uh, past figures in Scripture or something like that, it... it it can still be historical mm. in nature, you know, if that's their intent. Yeah. So, or, um, yeah. I, I think there are too many people that when they see something like that, they're too quick to say, well, see, they're just using Old Testament stories and copying from them. That's, no, you can just as easily say Jesus is going to Old Testament motifs and showing he's the greater fulfillment of all of these. Yeah, you can argue that way for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but trying to to splice that out and see where the uh, where the exact uh, you know is it the author that's trying to to paint the subject in this light, or is it the individual who's trying to paint you know present himself as as a you know in light of another figure in in scripture that. It's really difficult to tell on what level that's occurring, um, and so it, it does it does present uh, quite a dilemma. Um, and so you know, it's just both both sides of the argument there, uh, you know, have are, are making claims that necessarily can't be resolved. I mean, you can't you just gonna have to kind of choose <laughs> what you think is going on there. Yeah. Um, so. Now, in the chapter on Alexander the Great comparing him to Jesus, and one thing that we can quickly note is that our earliest biographies of Alexander the Great come at least 300 years later. I mean, there were earlier written sources, but we don't have them anymore. They've been lost. So we have to go with these later sources. But he also talks about how the writers of the Gospels could have gone about researching and checking out oral information and such, and it occurred to me that's something we haven't really discussed yet. If the Gospel writers are writing these Greco-Roman biographies, how would they normally go about doing their research? Um, well, I I don't, you know, I guess all we kind of have to go on is, is maybe how other ancient historians mm-hmm. did their research. Uh, we know that they, they went about, um, they, they traveled to locations. Uh, they interviewed individuals who were supposedly a part of it. Of course, mm-hmm. this has to be, this has to be in instances where they're writing contemporary history. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, that was a, that's a, a big part of, of what we understand ancient historiographical research to be uh, again traveling, interviewing people, um, comparing sources, uh, you know, being critical of sources. They weren't. You know, we have episodes or examples where 
ancient historians were definitely critical of their sources and uh, would refute sources based off of other information. Um, so it's not, I mean, I would assume that they, they did it just to, uh, about the same way as anyone else interested in, in writing a work about the life of a, of a single individual. Mm -hmm. um, there's not a, not a whole lot of uh, creativity in it. You know, it's not, uh, you can't. You can only do it a so many ways. Yeah. Uh, unless you just want to take one source and just copy that and make up mm -hmm. the rest. Find podcasts, videos, articles, and more at deepwatersapologetics.com. It all started with a small-time dream: hold a conference in a church. With a small budget, could we afford to bring in a Christian celebrity speaker? And with an ear to hear more than just the same canned messages, do we want to? With these two questions, The Mentionables were born. We found the best under-the-radar Christian apologists that we could find. Writers, podcasters, and bloggers. Their voice was small, but their message was huge. On May 18th and 19th, The Mentionables will be appearing in Greensboro. Head out to Greensboro Christian Church and hear this grassroots phenomena in action, featuring talks and a great debate. Head over to thementionables.org to get your tickets or call Greensboro Christian Church at 336-621-5226. The Mentionables. Small-time voices, big-time noise. Yeah, I'd like to remind also everyone at this point before we continue, you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast, and we are supported by listeners like you. And I encourage you to go to the uh, website, deeperwatersapologetics.com, and you click a link there, the link that says, Help Support the Work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. You click on it, you get taken to Risen Jesus. You've gone to the right place. Those are my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona, and you... Uh, you make your donation, and you get in touch with me, or my wife, Allie, or Mike, or Debbie, and say, Hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. And we will get your donation, and it will be tax-deductible. It will go to us. You can also buy e-books that I have written, such as A Creed for the Ages, The Apostles' Creed in Today's Christian, or Coven, God and Natural Disasters, or defining inerrancy, quite relevant to what we're talking about today. Or groundness, Christian answers to this generation's questions, others. Another great method you can use as well is uh, buying jewelry. Now, guys, you really need to pay attention to this. The ladies in your life, they like jewelry. I mean, are you married, T, or... I am married, and I have two boys, and I have one on the way. So we're about to have a really full and crazy household. <laughs> well, congratulations. Does your wife like jewelry? She does. Mm -hmm. She doesn't. She doesn't just mm -hmm. wear it all the time, but she enjoys it. Yep. Uh, yeah. Yeah, guys, be listening to your curse. I mean, my own wife has an allergy to knicker. 
and she enjoys jewelry. She wishes she could wear it more often. Your women up there, they love to have those dazzling gifts and go out there and say, the man in my life gave me this. So if you want to buy some jewelry for her, do it through us. And when you do, you do it through Premier Jewelers, our agent Lena Cluster. 25% of whatever you purchase goes to support deeper waters. So you go, you buy a $100 item, we get 25 bucks, you get jewelry. And guys, you know what I've always told you about this. If you go and you can buy something special at Lady in Your Life to, to make up that big screw-up that you just did with her, or you can go and buy something special that Lady in Your Life to make up that screw-up that I know you're going to make with her... And, yeah, you've been there, haven't you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And um, if you can't do any of these, guys, please go on iTunes and leave positive reviews of Deeper Waters. I love to see them. And we do have some changes coming up in how we're doing the show. We're going to be having more scholarly intros and things like that and such. we got a new sound guy working on things. Let me know how you like the changes. Let me know if there's anything you'd like to see done differently. Or if you want to know, if you have an idea for a guest you'd like to have on the show, drop me a line. I'll look into it. I'm very open to this kind of thing. Now, uh, T, do you have an organization or such that you'd like to see people donate to? I don't have anything specifically. Um, no, I, I I really don't. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I just encourage all your listeners to, to definitely support this podcast and mm-hmm. the work that you're doing. So thank you. Uh, yeah. Now we are talking about how the gospels are written. I think one of the things we definitely need to get past, and I fear too many Christians who believe this is sort of the uh, drop from heaven idea. I don't know how many Christians I've seen say have pointed to a verse where it says, the Holy spirit will call all things into remembrance for you and say, See, because of this, they didn't need to do any research. God just called to mind everything for them. Yeah, yeah I think, I mean, obviously, just kind of going back to your, your question uh, just mm-hmm. a little bit ago, just, just take a look at Luke's preface. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's obvious that that if you, wanna, if you want insight, I guess, into how the Gospels were composed, uh, that's probably the, the closest thing you're going to get to an explanation. Mm-hmm. Uh, just the fact that you have, you know, Luke saying that there was individuals who, you know, were eyewitnesses and were there from the beginning, and they passed on their accounts. Um, and he's been been following these things all along, and it was his then his goal to to write an account, uh, which shows that you know. He's aware of what's going on. He's aware of other accounts. Um, he has an interest in presenting it, um, mm-hmm. you know, as 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 faithfully as he could. Um, and he, you know, is utilizing sources, obviously, by his use of, of Luke and Q. So he's, if you want, yeah, I mean, I, he gives us the most, I guess, we we have of of, of how the Gospels were were composed. Um, it's not much, but it does it does give us an idea that he's there to to preserve what's been said and to report it as 
as faithfully and as probably as accurately as he can. Mm-hmm. He's not he's not interested in just inventing information wholesale, um, and that's that's just true of ancient biographies. Mm-hmm. They they utilize sources. Uh, go look at Chris Alfred's chapter in in our book. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just it's so it's it's undeniable uh, that they were they were so intent on on preserving and utilizing existing tradition and information uh, that you can't you just can't get away from it. Yeah. I I often think that uh, when I've heard that uh, the Gospel of Luke, its preface, it does it's as stated clearly as Luke could for his time, but this is a real in-depth historical investigation. I mean, that's how that's how the ancients would have read it, right? I, I think so. I think that's I think that's what his preface is is getting at. Mm-hmm. Um, that that was his his intent is to preserve and produce a historical account. Mm-hmm. And I've often contended that if you take Acts as historical, especially with the we sections. That what I find the most plausible is that when Paul is in prison in Jerusalem, he's there for a couple of years or so, and can ready to go to Rome. This is a perfect time for Luke to run around the area, start talking to people and gathering information, because hey, Paul could maybe use this in Rome. Yeah, I, I, I mean, Luke's about as clo- you know as close to an ancient historian. <laughs> As we can get in the in the New Testament, so um, he definitely he does his research and uh, is most likely a part of that a part of that journey on some level uh, in the we narratives. So I, uh, you know, Luke's Luke's producing a work that that is is utilizing the conventions of ancient historiography. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I turned to Chris Alfred's chapter when you mentioned it. That's the fourth one, I believe. And I'd like to bring up a point that was also made of a debate where Mike said that the Plutarch's lives were the, high, were the best out there. And there's, here's a quote here. It says, Stuart's consideration that Plutarch's lives is a high watermark of ancient biographical aptitude. And Ehrman said, well, if... if the lives of Plutarch are the best, but they're still not completely reliable, and the Gospels are less than Plutarch. Why should I trust the Gospels? Yeah, I mean that's a that's an that's an interesting point. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you just have to to look at. I mean, again, it, it goes back in, to looking at at biographies on a case by case basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's true of, of one uh, ancient biographer isn't going to necessarily be true of of another. Mm-hmm. Um, and so reliability has to be determined by looking at at, at each work individually. Uh, and arri- that, those conclusions have to be arrived at individually. Uh, and that takes a great, great deal of effort. Uh, but, the, but the real issue is that in all ancient biographies, for, well, yeah, I don't, I don't want to say something exhaustively, but uh, 
there's going to be singularly excessive material. Right. Um, and, and that stuff is, you can't necessarily confirm it or, and you can't reject it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just really difficult to, to prove on a historical level. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we've developed all sorts of criteria to look at these types of things, but um, there's just, there's just going to be episodes in every ancient biography where uh, some people are going to say that it's, it's not historical and some people are, and there's just really no way to check it. So, I, I think a couple of examples from the Gospel of Matthew come to mind. One, I think it's much easier to deal with, and that's the, uh, the slaughter of the infants in Matthew 2. And the other one is when it's, you know, produced just a tiny little bit of controversy a few years ago, and that's the resurrection of the saints in Matthew 27. <laughs> just a yeah. little bit. <laughs> yeah, those are, those, uh, there's, there are some really difficult passages. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, trying to, to understand those and, and uh, you know, either whether it's, are they historical in nature, or is it, uh, is it, some sort of uh, generic convention that's going on and uh, that the author's utilizing. Um, yeah, it, it can definitely present uh, issues that are really difficult to resolve. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then you get you get something that it just becomes incredibly divisive um, on all sorts of levels, mm-hmm. uh, and everybody has their opinion about it, and then it's. It's really difficult to say who's right and who's wrong. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's uh, really great that you said that sometimes these things do show up in only one source. Because yeah. there are too many times I think we've come to the standard of the Bible that says, where if it's in the Bible, it needs to be shown by an outside source before we can believe it. And I ask, do you do that with all the other sources out there? Yeah, that's just not the way that you do history. That's not the way that historians, you know, do history. There's just so much material uh, in antiquity that's singularly attested. And if, you know, kind of what Dr. Keener says, if, if, it, if it checks out in other places, if we can see that that author is, is trying to be true to his sources or, or can be confirmed in other places, that you should probably trust them in the places where you can't uh, verify. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that's a reasonable approach. Um, and so, I, you know, it's just, it's just the nature of, of, of the historical record. Mm-hmm. It's just so incomplete. So much has been lost. Um, and we would, if we had access to everything that was written back then, we'd have such a better idea of... of what was accurate and what wasn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, we do the best with what we can. And uh, we just, we, again, you, you try to check it and confirm it as much as possible. And then when you come across information that's only attested in one source, um, you see how well it coheres with other information, uh, whether that's literary evidence or evidence that's, you know, other sort of physical remains or whatever, and, and you make your determination based off of it. Mm-hmm. Now, you've uh, said that there were there are other events that are attested in only one source in such one biography. Could you give us some examples? 
Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, again, Xenophon, uh, one of, uh, I'm looking at this one so specifically right now, I'm writing this chapter, Xenophon's Agathalaeus, and just his, his account of Agathalaeus' life includes information that is, is not attested in, in other sources. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you're, you're put in a position where you either have to just kind of throw your hands up in the air and say, I can't, I can't verify this, and I'm just going to reserve judgment. Or you can say, well, Xenophon was in a, in a very unique position to, I mean, he traveled with Agathalaeus, he fought alongside Agathalaeus. Uh, there's a high likelihood that Agathalaeus was, was his uh, patron. Um, uh, they, they knew each other intimately, and so you, you can appeal to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and say, well, this is, this guy was in a unique position to know some details about this individual's life that other people just simply did not know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but but you're you're always dealing in in probabilities, right? Um, when you get into this kind of area, you've got to speak that way, and you have to. You just can't speak in uncertainty, and then you know then. The whole discussion becomes, well, you know, how how likely is it, uh, and that becomes the standard. Yeah. So, I think there's a great danger in our scientific age, which not even scientific claims can be proven. They're also probable and such that we think something has to be absolutely proven before we believe it, and that's just not the case. Yeah, it's it's not the way that we we go about our daily lives either. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everything is not. Oh, you better show me your evidence for that before I, <laughs> I uh, put my faith in it. It's just you know we we depend heavily on yeah. on people uh, witness to, to a lot of events. Although I would say, to be fair, it would be good if a lot more people would do that before I don't know sharing things on Facebook, for instance. <laughs> yeah. That- Facebook is a, is a wasteland. <laughs> keep, keep in mind, everyone, we have April Fool's Day coming up for one day of a year where everyone checks claims before they hit share. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Facebook is, is fun and crazy all at the same time. Now, you've got a, there's a section in the appendix that Keener worked on, and I think it's very relevant to what we were talking about a while ago, and really does deal with a lot of the issues that me and my listeners will interact with. And one thing that's brought out in there is memory in the ancient world. I mean, I've got right here my phone here. There are so many people here whose phone numbers I don't know, but I don't have to know. I just go in, push the button, it calls them for me. I don't really need to use my memory there, unfortunately. That wasn't the way in the ancient world, was it? No, uh, yeah, they relied heavily on, on the memories of people, uh, communal memory mm-hmm. uh, of significant events, and they would pass them along uh, for quite some time. Yeah, memory was a, a huge aspect of preserving and passing along tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, Keener speaks about this a lot, about how reliable uh, that specific aspect was 
and preserving and, and passing along tradition. Of course, any memory, there's going to, I mean, there's, there's going to be differences, but when you talk about it from the communal aspect, uh, and the responsibility of a, of a large group of preserving a, a certain tradition, then you're, you're getting into probably more reliable stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's important to stress the reliability of a communal group because um, Bart Ehrman, for instance, is very well known for talking about how the stories of the Gospels were spread, that so-and-so told so-and-so who told so-and-so who told so-and-so. It's like the game of telephone. In the end, the story is completely different. And every time I see this, I think it's really extremely dishonest. I hate to say it, but I think he knows very well that's not the way it worked in the ancient world. Yeah, yeah. People are, yeah. Dr. Keener talks about that a lot and just kind of trying to understand the, the way that information was passed along, you know, orally and, and this whole idea that it was one person said it and then by the time you get, you know, especially, you know, 10, 15, 20 years later, it's been so incredibly distorted uh, that it's no longer recognizable. Uh, it's just a, it's not, it's not the correct way of looking at it. Uh, it's the communal preservation and the necessary, like the inherent checks and balances that come with that, mm-hmm. uh, that, that need to be understood by our, you know, by our, from, from our modern perspective. Uh, we don't necessarily have anything analogous to that today. I mean, we, we have people obviously passing along stories for sure. That's, you know, that's what you mm-hmm. do you, to what your parents and your grandparents say about the past. Mm-hmm. But in terms of this this whole this communal preservation and what and what that meant uh, in ancient Mediterranean culture and how they value that is something that's kind of foreign to us. I think the closest we could get are jokes and songs. That so you hear a song and you can start to memorize it. And so you hear a joke one time, and sometimes you can go and you can tell someone else the same joke, you might not remember it word for word, but you'll probably get the same kind of story out of it. Yeah, the idea of just of, of a gist, getting the gist. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And I think, <clears throat> I think this is even more the case with Jewish thinkers, because Jews especially had a lot to memorize, because they were a religion of a book just like Christianity sure. was, and there could have been a number of Jews that Jesus dialogued with who could have even had the entire Old Testament memorized. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, some of the stuff that Keener's written on memory is really, really informative, and uh, I would definitely point people towards his his massive historical Jesus work uh, to, to look at you know, in more depth. Mm-hmm. But it's actually something that we're kind of... Like, if I can remember correctly, we're thinking about doing a second edition to this to this work, um, mm. and some of the topics that we've we've tossed around include exploring this aspect a little bit further. Yeah, you've also got a section in there on disciples and teachers, and I think this is something James Dunn brings out in his book Jesus Remembered that if Jesus is sending out his disciples over seventy two in groups of two to tell the good news of a kingdom. He's going to make sure they knew what that good news of the kingdom was first, and any good disciple would be required to memorize the teachings of his teacher. 
Yeah, I mean, there's not, there's a whole lot of, I, that I can add to that. Uh, again, Keener presents evidence on on kind of the the approach that disciples had to maintaining and preserving their their teachers' traditions um, through memory, through, even through note taking. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, uh, disciples in antiquity were were very keen on on preserving their teaching their teachers' teachings as as best as possible. I know Ehrman said in his debate with Mike Vedder, there is no evidence we have that Jesus would ever tell the same parable twice, and such that's just something that so Mike is speculating about, but I'm looking to think, that seems like an entirely reasonable speculation. I mean, you and I have both delivered messages from a pulpit before, and it's now the case of, well, got done that message, guess I'll never be able to use that again. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, we definitely uh, can use the same information more than once, for sure. Um, so, yeah. Um, where do you see gospel research going now in light of the gospels being seen as Greco-Roman biographies? I, I don't know. I, I look at that from my own perspective. And, of course, my concerns are with the historical implications. Mm-hmm. So what is it, you know, we, we handed at this earlier, we talked about it, what does it mean, what's the, what, the so what of it all? Yeah. Um, and for me, personally, it's trying to understand how reliable ancient biographies were and do the Gospels map on top of that and mm-hmm. to what extent. And that's, that's, that is the, the purpose of my dissertation. It's to look at four other ancient biographies and kind of, map out this continuum and see where John fits. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that's, that's my concern. Um, so, uh, you know, there's other, there's other, there's other things to explore, uh, you know, character methods of characterization, uh, other types of, uh, narrative techniques that, that ancient biographies display and whether or not the gospels mimic those, mm-hmm. um, you know, so there, there's other things to explore, but my primary concern is is with the historicity of of the genre. I I believe I heard you say that uh, your focus is going to be on John just now. Am I right with that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting approach to take because I think usually if any gospel is questioned historically, it would be John. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I have a I have a heart for the underdog. Mm. Yes. <laughs> uh, that was just one thing that has always been an interest to me. Uh, you know, I, as I started my MDiv and started getting into apologetics and kind of seeing John's gospel being, you know, dismissed as a as a source for the historical Jesus, and trying to understand that, um, mm. I think his image has, has since been rehabilitated with with the. John Jesus and History Group at SBL and the, the three volumes that they put out on the topic uh, under Tom Thatcher and Paul Anderson. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I'm just, I, I want to kind of enter into that conversation. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I just want to understand better what what John is doing <laughs> with his material and why he is, is so incredibly different mm-hmm. than the synoptics. 
so and and just kind of checking for myself uh, to see how accurate I you know determine how accurate he really is. Uh, if I can pick your brain on that a little bit here, I know there's been a lot of debate on internet land lately about the Gospel of John with a statement being, with a, this thread being passed around this story about Craig Evans and saying that the I am statements of John are not historical and such. And do, do you have any take on that? No, I don't. I'm not aware of it. Uh, I apologize. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily follow what what's being said mm-hmm. in the blogosphere mm-hmm. <laughs> or in other other areas of the internet in regards to these types of discussions. So I, I apologize for not being aware of that. But mm-hmm. um, I would love to hear their arguments for why. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they would they would be probably pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't I don't necessarily. You know, just kind of thinking, thinking about how they could argue that they are are a historical. I just, I don't really, I don't really see how how they're making those claims. But again, I'd, I'd have to familiarize myself with their arguments. But um, I don't have anything to necessarily add to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I think also that Bauckham has actually said that if that John very likely does have a lot of eyewitness material behind it, I take it. You would agree with that? Uh, yeah, I, I I think so. Um, I think you know, obviously we have we have the beloved mm-hmm. disciple behind it, um, mm-hmm. and he seems to be privy to a lot of the uh, events. He, he, he claims that he was there. He claims that he saw what was going on in some instances. Uh, so yeah, I I I think there's there's eyewitness testimony there. Now to ter- now determining obviously who uh who the beloved disciple was and who the other mm-hmm. eyewitnesses are is a, is a minefield um but yeah i i, I would agree with bachman that there are there is some eyewitness testimony there for sure mm-hmm. you know since we mentioned jesus sayings i did see us in brooklyn now if this is something we should mention is that there seems to be also this problem at so many perhaps that we need to have the exact words of Jesus, this is asking for a bit too much, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I, I guess. I mean, I, I don't or kind of frame that a little bit differently in, in what you're asking. I guess are you uh, saying that in order for us to have have faith in the content, we need to we need it to be exact. Or, yeah, in, or in order for the gospel to be seen as reliable and such, we need to have the exact words that Jesus spoke. Not a paraphrase. We need the exact words. It would be nice, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but it's not necessarily the way that we we live our lives normally. I mm-hmm. mean, if you were to report something to me that that Doctor Lacona said. If you said, if you didn't give me a, a word by word, uh, you know, transcription of it, I'm not going to mm. be. It's, I'm not going to call you a liar. Mm. Um, and also, we need to understand that that may not even have been possible for them in, in some instances. Mm-hmm. They, they weren't sitting around with tape recorders, uh, so to hold them to standards just because it's it's something that we do now is inappropriate. 
so I, yeah, I don't. I mean, if Trump is 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 giving holding a press conference, obviously we want his exact words because we we can have them. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not necessarily the case in antiquity. So I think that's a that's holding them to a standard that is is a little bit too modernistic. And there's also a problem as well that Jesus very likely didn't was not speaking in Greek when he said any of these things. Yeah. He'd be speaking in Aramaic, so we're already getting a translation, but that's not really a big issue. Yeah, I, it doesn't necessarily bother me all that much. But then again, you know, going back to this idea of uh, disciples and the way that they preserve their teachers' uh, teachings mm-hmm. and the fact that, you know, in some instances, note, note-taking has been shown to, to have been a method that they used. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So who's, who's to say that, that there isn't some, you know, some episodes of that. So mm-hmm. it's difficult to kind of say either way. Either way, I mean, it would take a, a pretty significant argument to, to prove it or disprove it. Yeah, there was a version of shorthand going around at the time, wasn't there? Um, that, that's possible. I, I, I don't necessarily know exactly what that looked like. Mm. Um, so I, 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 can't, I can't speak definitively on that or what, what, what the shorthand looked like and what, they were, what exactly they were preserving and what they were willing to, to cast aside. I, I couldn't speak to that. So. Okay, as we're getting near to the end of this episode, uh, if, we're, if there's a Christian listener out there listening to this, I mean, what message would you like him, to, to walk away, him or her to walk away with about the Gospels today? Wow. <laughs> That's a that's a big question. Mm-hmm. Um, I you know, and it's tough because we're as as people of faith, we're coming at these documents from an entirely different perspective than a, mm-hmm. than a non-believer. Um, I think one one I guess I would say you know if we're if we're really just wanting to talk about it from just a strictly historical perspective. Um, that that you can be very comfortable in and making the claim that the gospels have historical intention mm-hmm. uh, you know the to to use that in apologetics and 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 maybe in some discussions with your friends that are unbelievers is entirely appropriate mm-hmm. uh, and to know that, that the gospels were we're utilizing sources and we're interested in being faithful to their sources and passing along information that they thought was accurate about the life of Jesus is not a, is not a, a crazy claim. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, to tell them that it's okay to kind of go forward with that understanding of, of, of the gospels and how they were composed and, 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 and what they are, they're like, um, so I think maybe something along those lines. Um, mm. So maybe that, that's that's something more so that you could use maybe in, in discussion, an apologetic type discussion. Just, mm. I don't know if, if that necessarily bolsters anyone's commitment to Christ or anything like that. Mm. But 
And what would you say to the skeptic out there listening to this show? Hmm. Let's have a cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's, you know, I, I, I guess I just don't have a, uh, this working model of a skeptic in my mind, mm-hmm. you know, to where I can say something to them universally. Yeah. To me, it's more about like, hey, I want to hear your concerns. I want to, I want to sit down and I want to walk through scripture, uh, and you and I, let's talk about it. And I'll tell you where I'm coming from and you tell me where you're coming from. And hopefully maybe something that I say along the way can inch you closer towards viewing the gospels as, as, as reliable. It's Mm -hmm. something that you can, you can read and know that, that what they say about Jesus is, is true. Mm -hmm. Um, I would never, ever dismiss their concerns. Um, or or their questions. So uh, to me, it, like I said, I don't have this kind of working model of, of skeptics, and I don't paint them all with one brush. I think we're getting in, into a different subject, but that's that's a problem with the way that we, we yeah. dialogue today. Um, I, I so. think there are too many, too many skeptics out there who think that we Christians don't really like to interact with this material. I remember before I got banned from Peter Bogosian's page that, Myself and some members used to go over all the time and discuss. And he posted something about uh, one of Bart Ehrman's books and said, "The fear showing up here. We'll never read this." And turns out, not only have we read it, many of us, like myself, already had reviews of it. It's like, yeah, we want to discuss this. We we. Uh, I mean, if I'm out there and someone presents me a skeptical book and says, "You need to read this one," I'm going to the library website immediately and trying to find it. Yeah. Yeah. I- yeah, it's it's really important to interact with literature from all different perspectives, and it's even more important to interact with individuals who have all different perspectives. And uh, it's something that I would I would welcome um, if anybody wants to contact me and chat with me further. I am so available. So. Well, it's interesting you say that because we are near that time. So if someone does want to contact you and chat with you, do you have a blog, a website, an email, a way people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more? Yeah, I don't have a blog. Uh, I definitely have email. Uh, you can mail me at edward.wright at mm-hmm. asburyseminary.edu. Or you can find me on Facebook, Edward T. Wright. And uh, I am, you know, I'll gladly chat with you, um, Skype with you, whatever. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter. Um, so I, I'm, I'm pretty easy to find mm-hmm. and, uh, and welcome anybody that, that wants to, to discuss these issues further. So. Mm-hmm. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave today for a deeper waters audience? Uh, I, you know, nothing is mm-hmm. nothing specific. I just, uh, I'm really thankful that you gave me this platform, this opportunity, Nick, and I appreciate mm-hmm. the work that you do. And, um, you know, you're an outstanding host and, uh, very inquisitive and thorough. And, uh, just again, I really appreciate this opportunity. I hope that somewhere down the line we can reconnect and, and maybe do this again. Yeah. Well, I'd like to let everyone know also, I just checked on Amazon right now. The book is only in paperback at the moment. Hopefully, Kindle will be coming out soon. But the book is 33 bucks on Amazon right now. It would be money well spent. And I'd like to thank you for coming on, T. And yeah, hopefully we will see you back here again sometime, maybe in the fall and such. That sounds great. Thank you so much, Nick. 
Now, I'd like to everyone, but next week we're going to have Debbie and Tom Barter on talking about their book, Cherishing Us. For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing off.